Okay, welcome, welcome everyone. We're gonna start with How Happiness Thinks, lesson three. All of the less courses in the lesson, all the lessons in the courses don't have, are not dependent on each other. Before Zach asked if, you know, if missing lesson two means that he's not gonna understand lesson three. Well, that's not the case. Every lesson you can take the teachings that the lesson has and apply it. And, and the other lessons, what they do is they complement and they fill in what's not discussed. So, welcome, welcome. So we're going to start with um, a little recap of what we learned last time, or what we learned uh, last time regarding the um, regarding um, happiness. The first lesson was about being who you are. That the reason why um, the reason why yeah, that the that the the our uh, mindset when it comes to happiness, the 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 main difference in etymology between Hebrew and English is that happiness in English comes from the word happens, something that happens to you. So if good things happen, so then you're happy. If not, then no. And in Hebrew, the same letters that form the word besimcha, which means to be in a joyous state, forms the word machshava, which means mind or thought. In other words, that the key or that the, that the, part, the, the starting point for happiness regarding the Torah view is machshava starts in your mind. So if you have the right mindset, so then you can be happy. And if you don't have the right mindset, whatever is your circumstances and whatever happens to you, even if you are, um, all the good things you're, you have, you could still have, you could still be in a negative way or unhappy. Then in lesson two, we spoke about things that um, stop us or distract us from having the right mindset. And we spoke about how to deal with those things. And then lesson three, we're going to speak about a little bit more about the main, we're going to speak more about how to be happy, specifically being or having an abundance. And... I think this class is very connected to the times. I don't think it's just uh, random that we ended up learning about this class, as you're going to see in the content of it, that we're learning this class a day before Thanksgiving is actually, it's very appropriate Thanksgiving to the class. So um, that's why it's called the Thanksgiving edition. You know, the Thanksgiving edition of the class is because of the content of this class. It's going to be a deeper understanding or at least a Jewish understanding and what is to be thankful and what is or what's the best way to celebrate Thanksgiving, aside from eating turkey and getting together with family. Okay, so if you, we're going to start with, uh, with a short video. I'm going to show a short presentation. And that's going to be the opening for this, for the whole, this is going to be the question. And during the course, we're going to try to figure it out, the answer. University, Tal Ben-Shahar, an Israeli-born psychologist, began to teach a course on the science of happiness, known as positive psychology. The course merged the rigor of scientific research with the accessibility of self-help. It explored how to add joy to everyday life and how to create more happiness and life fulfillment. Within a few years, Shahar's class became the most popular course ever taught at Harvard with over 800 students. In his book, Happier, Learn the Secrets to Daily Joy and Lasting Fulfillment, Tal Ben-Shahar writes the following. While interest in and study of the good life transcends time and place, there are some unique aspects in our age that help explain the high demand for positive psychology. In the United States, rates of depression are 10 times higher today than they were back in the 1960s. And the average age for the onset of depression is 14 and a half, compared to 29 and a half in 1960. A study conducted in American colleges tells us that nearly 45% of students were so depressed 
that they had difficulty functioning. Other countries are following in the footsteps of the United States. In 1957, 52% in Britain said that they were very happy, compared to 36% in 2005, despite the fact that the British had tripled their wealth over the last half century. With the rapid growth in the Chinese economy comes a rapid growth in the number of adults and children who experience anxiety and depression. According to the Chinese health ministry, the mental health status of our country's children and youths is indeed worrying. While levels of material prosperity are on the rise, so are levels of depression. Even though our generation, in most Western countries, as well as in an increasing number of places in the East, is wealthier than previous generations, we are not happier for it. A leading scholar in the field of positive psychology, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, asks a simple question with a complex answer. If we are so rich, why aren't we happy? What are possible answers to this question? What do you think? And with that, I continue this question to you. What do you think? How do you explain this phenomenon? There's more choices. Oh, yeah. There are. Oof. Yeah, more choices. More things that can make you depressed. Meaning more choice, but more choices isn't something positive. More choices should be, you know, back then people don't have potatoes. Now we have. I would guess they'd be Uber more eats. appreciative back then. And okay. now people are like, I don't have what this other person has, especially with social media. It makes, I guess it gives you a different outlook. Like back in the day, a single farmer was like, I'm so glad I was able to eat today and the crops were good. Now they're like, well, I saw this other farmer just doing amazing on social media and it's just getting so much attention. I don't feel good about myself. What okay, I so think about it is from my, my experience in, in the Dominican Republic and the Peace Corps, I, I went to a, an open market uh, one day with my next door neighbor, and he looked, he pointed to everything at the market, all the fruits and vegetables, and he, and he said, look, you know, we don't have anything, like, uh, some of the kids in my neighborhood didn't have shoes on their feet or didn't have, like, a real baseball bat to play baseball with, but he said, look at everything we have in the market, like, we produce this in our land, like, we have nothing, but we have everything at the same time, and that was a really... Um, really interesting thing to hear about uh, from his perspective. He said, we have nothing, but we have everything at the same time, which I thought was really beautiful. Hmm. And back then you could appreciate it more. Now it's just like, you see everybody have everything. So, so I think you're saying two points. You're saying that number one, back then people didn't know more than potatoes, so. Right, exactly, why would, why would you need to think more? But now like you have all and Now you go on social media and you see all the. Like potatoes, but then there's purple potatoes. Why can't I have a purple potato? Right. And together with that is the fact that the other point that you said that, oh, they, they, they appreciate it. They appreciate what they had. Okay, those are, those are valid points, yeah. What we're gonna try to discuss in this class is, so, so what it seems like from, from the video or from the studies is that more wealth equals, you know, it's like almost cause and effect. Like more wealth equals more for all the reasons that you guys mentioned and the reasons that we learned in the, past, in the previous classes, either you have a self, either you have a negative image of yourself or, or, or you think you deserve it all, you're an arrogant. There are a lot of reasons why this could lead us to uh, depression or lead people to depression and lead people to the opposite of happiness. But the question that we will want to get into is, 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 is this a must? Is this like the nature of wealth? That the nature of wealth is that if you're wealthy, so then automatically together the baggage comes with you have problems? Or there is a way how to not only deal with it, but thrive with it. And nowadays, advertising is not going away anytime soon. Unless you get rid of your phone and, and you know, go live somewhere else. But just walk on the street, you see you know, everything in the street, you, everything in your phone. So, is there a, what what Judaism, what the Torah has to say regarding living a life that is full of full of of wealth, and at the same time, the Torah says that we have to be happy. We have to live happy lives. So that's what we're going to try to understand this 
um, in this course. Okay, um, I'm gonna start again, same side. So Neta, you want, with the first, the first uh, uh, text, now text number one is basically what we saw in the video, but we're gonna continue with text number B. So Neta, if you could read, please. That is page 88. Okay, a parable. There was once an infant found in the desert by a kind-hearted individual. The benevolent man took pity on the child, carried him to his home, brought him up, fed him, clothed him, and provided him generously with all that was good until the child was old enough to understand and comprehend the many benefits he had received. The same benefactor heard of a man who had fallen into the hands of his enemy and had, for a long time, been treated with extreme cruelty, starved, and kept naked. The benevolent man's compassion was roused. He appeased the enemy and convinced him to free the prisoner and forgive his debt, and he brought the man to his home. The kindness that he showed this man was a fraction of the kindness he showed the child. I'll go ahead, continue with the question. Uh, which of the rescued individuals will be more appreciative of the rescuer and why? Okay, what do you guys think? The, the baby, the infant, or the, or the adult? The adult. It why? says the adult. Oh, why, oh, I mean, the adult had like only a period of his time, like a short period of his life was taken care of. Doesn't it have to do with the, the amount of load that you're at, right? So with the kid, he was bringing him up kind of on, like incrementally giving him kindness as he raised him. But with the man, he came in and bestowed like a large amount of kindness for a short period of time. And that's a transformative learning experience that really sticks with you. So are you saying that the shock or the, the, the change that he had, the little child didn't experience it? Or maybe also like the, the child, I think anyone who would come across a child in the desert would do that. Like who wouldn't do that? But then okay. with this other guy, it's a lot harder. There's more steps involved to like become someone's friend, convince him to free this dude. So you're saying that the child kind of like not doesn't recognize, but he 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 acknowledges that it's not such a big thing what the what the rescuer did because it was a child. It's just universal. It's more universal. It's more everyone will give money to, you know, when they see children that are suffering. I don't see adults, whatever, you know, it's, it's not as, okay, yeah, those are, those are all things that, that, um, that have logic, and what, this is basically a parable, this is a mashal of, of the, of, that the Chovat HaLevavot, Rabbi he wrote uh, this as a, as a, a parable to teach us that the kid, took things, what we call it, took things for granted. He, he grew up there and for granted, he took it, he took it, that, that's what's gonna happen. Um, Toyen? Yeah? Okay, but I know just. Then the, the older, the older, the adults, he didn't take things for granted because he realized the situation that he had before and then the situation that he has now. So a lot of the times, having a lot of wealth and a lot of good around us, it doesn't bring us happiness because we take it for granted. We take it for granted the fact, even if you just go to the smallest things, as we're going to read from Helen Keller, and I forgot to mention at the beginning of the course, that this whole, at the beginning of the lesson, this whole course, um, the beauty of it is that it's merging or connecting ancient Jewish wisdom, like we just went from, we just read from B'chayah ibn Pekuda, with modern psychology. Uh, so that's why we, we go back and forth. You're going to see that we go to Torah sources and then we go and you see how even psychologists nowadays okay, came up to the same conclusion. So we're going to see, um, and we're going to ask from, what's your name? Aaron. Aaron. Aaron, you would, would you read us text number three? Sure. Uh, Helen Keller, uh, three days to see. Uh, only the deaf. Uh, appreciate hearing. Only the blind realize the manifold blessings that lie in sight. Particularly does this observation apply to those who have lost sight and hearing in adult life. For those who have never suffered impairment of sight or hearing seldom make the fullest use of these blessed uh, faculties. Their eyes and ears take in all sights and sounds hazily without concentration and with little appreciation. 
It is the same old story of not being grateful for what we have until we lose it, of not being conscious of health until we are ill. I have often thought it would be a blessing if each human being were stricken blind and deaf for a few days at some time during his early adult life. Darkness would make him more appreciative of sight. Silence would teach him the joys of sound. Recently, I was visited by a very good friend who had just returned from my long walk in the woods, and I asked her what she had observed. Nothing in particular, she replied. I might have been incredulous had I not been accustomed to such responses, for long ago I became convinced that the sea that the sea and sea little. Yeah. So do you agree with this poem? And does it make sense why, and what Thomas Lavova says, that we, we, everything we have in life, we take it for granted. Even, even this, as, as she's saying, the, the ability to see. The ability to see, there are people who don't see, but we live in a life that we take for granted. We, we're able to see, we're able to walk, we're able to do all these things. So that's why um, we don't really appreciate it. It's and like we you don't go on a walk, you forget to smell the roses. You forget to take that moment to appreciate what's on the earth, to appreciate what you have, to appreciate what's around you. Yeah, 100%. Actually, when I was preparing the class, right after I prepared the first time, I walked out, and I just started looking at the leaves and the trees and all the colors of the leaves. And, and it's so beautiful. And I was like, yeah, it, it is something that we take for granted, that, you know, the fact that, we, that wherever we live, that whatever we have, is is something that we don't we don't in other words we don't appreciate it and that's number that's one reason or that's number one one of the reasons why um even having a lot of wealth that doesn't mean or doesn't equal happiness because it's not about the wealth it's about the appreciation that you have for it so as you said you said you mentioned that the people were so appreciative for all the food that they had so they felt that they don't, they're not missing anything. They have everything because they were able to appreciate. But if you, if you go to camp and canteen doesn't have Reese's, whatever chocolate, the kids are upset. Yeah. Why? They have everything else, but they don't have Reese's uh, chocolate because they, they, they're not appreciating everything else. And what they don't have, they don't... And what, what's lacking, that's what they want. And since it's not able to be fulfilled, so that's why they... They're unhappy. So this is for something that we take for granted. Let's say, or in the case of the, of the, of the parable, someone who you know, sees in his adult life, sorry, things, we're just talking about things that we, we take for granted as we were born. We were born in a certain way. We're able to walk. We're healthy. Now, the question is, this shouldn't be applied to things that we actually do get when we, when we are older. Let's say when you get a job or when you enter a... Uh, a good relationship or when you know things that happen when we are conscious adults but nevertheless for some reason after a while just like falls into the category of, of taking it for granted again the question is what happened so we're going to continue with uh, C there's a learning exercise um, we're going to skip the exercise you can do it by yourself but the point is that a lot of things that we actually made us happy, for some reason, ceased making us happy. So we're going to see what the Medrash has to say. In text number four, we're going to see what the Medrash has to say about, um, about, about this concept of, of having and, and taking things for granted. Julian, I'm going to ask you to read. Sure. No person leaves this world with even half of his desires fulfilled. When we have 100, we want to make of it. We want to make of it 200. When we have 200, we want to make of it 400. I'll continue text five. This is what we saw. This is uh, the, the sources in the Medrash. And in modern psychology, we see it from um, How of Happiness. So text number five. Go ahead. As we acquire income and consumer goods that we desire, gadgets, computers, cars, homes, or swimming pools, our aspirations simply rise to the same degree. Therefore, trapping us in a hedon, hedonic treadmill. In one study that surveyed people over a 36-year period, respondents were asked how much income was needed by a family of four to get along. The higher the person's income, the more they estimated was required for a family of four. Remark remarkably, the estimate for get-along income increased almost exactly to the same degree as did actual income, suggesting that the more you have, the more you think you need. And the question is, what is the cause of the, for this fact of human nature? Why is it? Why is it that 
that's so fast, you know, we, 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 even things that are novelty, we still take it for granted. Anyone? Any thoughts? I mean, I think within humans, we're, we're built to see the potential in things, right? So that's a good quality to a degree. Like you can see something, it can become something better. So you're saying, you're saying this is like aspiration. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question. One is, because Torah always says that you need to aspire for more and you have, to have a, you, know, you have to have more growth and at the same time... There's two sides to everything. At the same time, wanting more is, is something negative and you should be fulfilled and content with what you have or you should be always striving for more. So like... Chocolates, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, you can strive, but not want. You I don't know, maybe it's the context. Maybe right. like, yeah. like academically, I know I want more, or like professionally, I want more to grow more in my skills or whatever it might be. But maybe like, um, like right now I'm dog sitting in a, a really, really big house, bigger than what I'm used to from what I grew up in. And like, I ate, I, I could never even imagine having this many rooms in my house or having this many things in, in one space. So I feel like maybe it's context. Like I, I want to grow in my skill set and like my, my job, but maybe I don't want that bigger house. Maybe I don't want that fancier car. Maybe it just depends. So you're saying like things that are spiritual and meaningful you should always be striving for. Yes. Things that are like physical or non-meaningful shouldn't be. That, that, that makes sense, and that's also in line with, there's a, there's a quote, a Hasidic quote, that says that when it comes to material um, possessions, so you should always be looking for people who have less and appreciate what you have. But when it comes to spiritual possessions or spiritual uh, um, knowledge or, 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 or things that you have, so you should always be looking for people who have more than you and become inspired and want to have more like them. So the answer might be that depending what, you know, if, if, is, if is something spiritual, you should always be striving for more. If it's something physical, you should not. We're gonna, I'm going to ask, this is not part of the course, and we're kind of, we're kind of like going, going away a little bit over here. But if someone is able, let's say, to make good moves in business, you shouldn't be doing it. According to Torah, if someone is able to like really strike or really, you know, work hard in the stock market and make it big. Yeah, do it. Why not? Because then it, you can use it to bring you spiritual fulfillment. So because sadaka charity is so important to Judaism, if you're able to make a lot of money, it means you can give more to the Jewish community. So you'll have to be thinking kind of a step ahead too. So what you're saying basically is that it's a spiritual experience. If there's a spiritual end to the meat, to the journey, then maybe, yeah. So since the goal is something spiritual, even the means is also, I mean, not, it's not objectively spiritual, but is part of the spiritual experience, because at the end of the day, that's money is going for a greater cause. It's like buying cost. a mansion versus maybe donating tzedakah to an organization or something. Right. That's, that's the, that's the One's basic. One's going to more, there's more, there's more there than, than the other. Yeah. That's the, that's the basic approach, I think. But we kind of like went a little bit out of the topic of happiness. So we're going we're gonna to go back. We're reading what? Text number um, six. six. And, and text number six is going to say, Zach, I'm going to ask you to ask. This is going to say a little bit, or we're going to explain a little bit about human nature. Why is that, um, that this, this, this phenomenon that, that we live through? All of us can express the emotional highs that come with buying a new car or reading a child's outstanding report card. And each of us is familiar with the emotional thought troughs that come with chronic illness, remodeling the house, or getting arrested. Okay, well, maybe only a few of us are familiar <laughs> with getting arrested. But ask yourself, why don't you stay that way? Why aren't you as happy today as you were on the day of your promotion at work? or as sad as you were on the day your grandmother died. It is, it is not simply because new events, both happy and sad, have occurred in your life. 
it is because you adapt to the new conditions over time. This is why so many folks seem, seek out novel experiences, look forward to a change of pace, or develop new goals once old ones have been met. We tend to react to change and then quickly adjust to the new circumstances. So we have a human nature is the ability, has the ability or the, the nature to adapt. We adapt and we adapt for good and sadly we adapt for bad as well. Uh, adapt for good means that if you're having a good, uh, we're lucky or fortunate to have a, something better happening to us. So we adapt right away to that and that becomes the status quo. And, and that's why we're not able to we kind of like goes back again into the taking it for granted category. Text number seven is going to take a, 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 this, this step a little bit even further. And it's gonna, we're gonna, okay, we're gonna read, I'm gonna read text number seven. People neglect to contemplate the benefits God bestows upon them because of the sole aspiration on which their hearts are fixed is further satisfaction of their desires and fulfillment of their wishes. Whatever stage of success they attain, they seek to proceed higher and further. In other words, the reason why wanting more is something that holds people back from being happy is because when we are, when our minds is in what we don't have, our minds is experiencing something, something negative or something that is lacking. In other words, when we invest ourselves in what we don't have, we want the car that we don't have, we want the house that we don't have. In other words, we have the aspiration for something that is physical, that it's not yet in our reach. So then we live in a space of something that is lacking by us. So that space is lack is the same context as negative, And that's why it makes us unhappy. Not having more makes us unhappy. So it's not really doesn't really matter um it's not about so before we read about before we read about the the adapting that i adapt so fast that this is already my nature now we're seeing even a, a step even further that it's not about adapting anymore it's about where you where your mind is dwelling and your mind is dwelling in something that you don't have something that is negative so that's why wanting more or or being in other words, as soon as we become fulfilled or, or become the status quo of what we have and we want more, right away we are catapulting ourselves in something that we don't have, something negative. So comes out, comes out that from the from the, what we see what we've seen till now is that what what are the reasons or just follow up with the PowerPoint PowerPoint. Yeah, we read that we acquire things, we adapt very fast, and then the needing more, that is also something that it takes us all the time and and prevents us from being happy. So text number eight is going to take this human nature and applying it to nowadays. In other words, it's going to say that all of this existed throughout society, but nowadays is even more relevant or is even more dangerous or more, the, the rates of depression are even more. And that is because As we spoke before, we have the ability to flaunt the wealth, meaning we have the ability to show off something that was not able in the past. And that together with the culture of, of consumerism that we live through, so then all of that becomes much more harder for us to be able to be content with what we have or to be able to feel fulfilled or not think about something new. We just got the iPhone, latest iPhone, and we're already thinking about the newest iPhone that is coming out. You know, that's a product of good marketing. That's a product of good consumer um, advertising. 
But at the end of the day, that impacts the human behavior and the human being and the, and the society nowadays of how we live. So the question is, specifically us, what is the message, what the Torah has to say for people that have this problem that exists in society, but has it magnified in, a society, in, in, in our generation? Okay. Um, Neta, I'm going to ask you to read text number eight. By nature, a person who has 100 desires, 200, and therefore no person leaves this world with even half of his desires fulfilled. This applies even more so to one who is self-absorbed. He loses sight of who he really is and thinks he deserves more. Due to his perpetual dissatisfaction, not only is his happiness with what he has incomplete, he's actually distressed by it. He overinflates his importance and is therefore always distressed in as much as all that he is given by God, family, health, and sustenance and the honor he is accorded by others. It is not adequate for his esteemed nature as he perceives it. Yeah, so this is uh, the, from the previous rabbi that he says that this is exactly what, you know, kind of describing um, the society that we live in. Not only we're not happy, but the depression even grows further. Text number, um, uh, we're gonna start reading now. The, okay, so this was the, up until now was a question. Was the, 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 re- the research that, we got, that we've, we've seen the questions, sources in the Torah. Now we're going to see what the Torah has to say and how to tackle. That not only by uh, having wealth, we should not only not get depressed, but sh- through having wealth, we should be happy people. Um, Aaron, would you read um, text number nine? Sure. Um, when a person pours his feelings of love into, the, into words, after speaking these words, fuels and intensifies the love. Through speaking about it, the emotional energy radiates with more passion, and the person is aroused with more love and fondness for the object of his love. The same applies to all emotions. When they are not expressed through speech, they are reduced until they completely dissipate. When they are expressed verbally, they augment and grow considerably. So this is a preface to the message that the Torah has, or the message of Judaism. Yeah, the title is the habitude of gratitude, meaning the ability or the, not only culture, but the ritual that, that the Torah has to be grateful, to say thank you, or to appreciate what we have. The prefaces that brings from the, from the, from the fifth Lubavitcher Rabbi, that he explains and elaborates on how the, how the human being works a little bit. When you speak about something, you, you give that specifically when you speak about an emotion, such as love or, or, or something negative, you create within you and you even elaborate and, and, and develop that emotion. So if you, say, if you speak about uh, lovely things, you'll, you'll elaborate and you'll, you'll arouse within you positive emotions. If, if you speak something uh, negative or, or, or something that is hateful, those same emotions are gonna arouse from you. That's why it's very important not to talk negative about anyone else. Because the fact of uh, speaking negative, even if the person doesn't hear, but it's, neg- it's, it's harmful for the one who's talking also. Because it creates negative experiences, not only in him, but the, the, according to Hasidic teachings, even, even the person who's being spoken about, spoken about, he also suffers because it creates the reality in the world, or at least um, focuses that part of them in the world in, in, in the world. But the point is that when we speak about something, we feel that way. And that is the reason or the way of that we live Judaism. That's the reason uh, that's the way that we live Torah. Torah we see throughout the whole Jewish life that we have rituals and and and, and blessings that we say that it's all about gratitude. And that is the, and the, the key for having wealth and to be happy at the same time. Not to fall into the depression or being part of the rates or the numbers that we saw just for in the, before in the video, but actually thriving having wealth. One of, the, one of the mitzvahs that the Jews were commanded as soon as they went into the land of Egypt, as soon, soon as they went into the land of Israel, was the mitzvah of Bikurim. What does Bikurim mean? Bikurim is um, the first fruits of the harvest. They used to gather 
farmers used to gather uh, whatever grew, grew first from the fruits, and put it in a basket and bring it all the way up to Jerusalem. And they gave it to the Cohen, and that was a big celebration for the farmers and for the and in the temple itself, they brought special offerings. And there was a prayer that they said. There was a prayer that they said when they brought the, the bikud in the basket of fruits. And that prayer is part of the, actually is part of the Haggadah. Of, we say we read it in Passover every, every year. It's by the part that everyone is falling asleep before the, before the actual food. Um, but the same text is we're going to read now text number 10. So 10a, and I'm going to ask, uh, Julie, if you could read 10a and 10b. Sure. An Armenian sought to destroy my forefather. He went down to Egypt and sojourned there with a small number of people. And there he became a great, mighty, and numerous nation. The Egyptians treated us cruelly and afflicted us, and they imposed hard labor upon us. We cried out to God, the God of our fathers, and God heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. God brought us out from, from Egypt with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, with great awe and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place, and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, I have brought the first of the fruit of the ground that you, God, have given me. Amen. And you shall rejoice in all the good that God, your God, has given you and your family. So that's the continue. This is continuation of. Um, it's it's not the same. It's not the same text, but this is from a, another time. Is saying regarding the bikurim. Text ten follows to the action of the bikurim, but what do we see? The farmer comes. Have in mind the farmer lived like maybe a couple hundred thousand years after Jews left Egypt, and he's saying. The, cheap, the, the Egyptians treated us cruelly, and now thank you, Hashem, for bringing me to this land, land of honey. Um, now, behold, they have brought the first of the fruit of the ground that you, God, have given to me. And he brings it to the temple. This is the first time in the Torah that the Torah speaks about, on a ritual or in a mitzvah way, about gratitude. Saying to the farmers to bring it. I have in mind that these farmers lived so many years later. Nevertheless, the ability or the recognition was key. The ability to recognize where they're coming from and what they have now and to be grateful about it, that was key for even hundreds of years later. And that's why the mitzvah became a ritual. And what the Torah says, once they were able, the farmers were able to recognize and internalize this message, the result was text 10b that says, and you shall rejoice in all the good that God, your God, has given you and your family. The result of being gratitude, of being grateful, is, and you shall rejoice. Meaning, it's not only a commandment, but it's as well a assuring. God is assuring. If you recognize and if you are able to appreciate and be grateful for what you have, so then you'll be happy. You'll be able to rejoice. Now, Nowadays in the temple, nowadays, sorry, the temple destroyed. We don't even live in Israel. Even those who live in Israel, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very not problematic. It's very complex to have a farm in Israel. Yeah, today, this year actually is the year of, of Shemitah, which means that farmers don't work the land in Israel. It's ironic, but if you travel anywhere around the world and you want to keep kosher, the easiest way to go about it is you just pay for the vegetables, you know. Fruit and vegetables, it's no problem. You just make sure there's no bugs, but that's it. If you're in Israel, the hardest thing, if you want to keep kosher, the hardest and the most um, um, problematic thing to buy is fruit and vegetables. Because there's so many laws that apply to the fruit and vegetables in the land of Israel that you need to make sure that the apple has a certification that comes from a proper field and that the field is following all the, all the halachot. So that was ironic to see that... Uh, that keeping kosher in Israel and Argentina was easier to get like chocolate bars than that were kosher than an apple. Anyways, nowadays we don't have we don't have uh, land. So what, what do they eat? No, they they are there are a lot of brands that are certified. No, no, I'm saying for if you're not supposed to grow for a whole year. 
So a few things. Number one, the Jew has to own the, the field. Okay. So if the field is not owned by a Jew, you could technically buy it from them. Um, you should double check before you do so. I'm just saying on top of my mind. Number two, nowadays, business you could import and export very easily. Number three, there's a lot of products that grow in water, like lettuce in Israel, they grow everything in, 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 in water and things like that, which don't apply. And, and, and everything applies only for the territory that was considered Israel in the times of the temple. Or not only times of the temple, but any territory that a king of Israel, together with a Jewish senate, known as the Sanhedrin, um, went on a war and, and you know the Senate approved of the word and the king conquered so even that piece of land as well fell into that category but nowadays Syria or even in Israel itself a lot is not part of the of the land of Israel in the sense of of, of uh, the sanctity of it so the Golan that is yes the Golan that is yeah there's a lot of there's a lot there's a very big part that it is now um, now there is a lot of ways around it. I think as if if a Jew owns it, if a non-Jew owns it, you could buy. Um, Can you lease it to a non-Jew for a year? So so there it, there are things like that, and and there are rabbis who specifically deal with this. But nowadays to get stuff, it's just like very easy from other countries. They get it all the time. Anyways, nowadays we don't have farms. I mean. Most Jews don't have farms. So in Israel, who owns the bigger farms? Jews. Oh, you mean just around the world? Most Jews yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. from the 15 million Jews around in the world, most of them don't have fields in the land of Israel. So the question is, how do we apply this, this concept? It's not the mitzvah. We're not allowed to do it. We're not able to do it anymore. So text 11, you're going to see that our leaders foresaw this scenario coming. So, Zach, text 11. Moses foresaw that the temple would be destroyed and the offering of the first fruits would cease. He took initiative and ordained that the Jewish people should pray three times a day. So, prayers nowadays, people think that it's all about asking. It's all about um, asking your God your needs. But prayer, most of prayer, is about acknowledging and recognizing and appreciating what we have. Most of prayer is about the wonder and the greatness of Hashem and how Hashem provided us. So that ability, that ability, that, that, um, that part of prayer that we're able to recognize, that's what Moses did. Moses said, we need to, have, we need to pray. People are going to be in business. They're going to be in the middle of Atlanta. You know? So if they don't pray every day three times, you could just like go with your day and not even thinking about it. Not only that, since the Bikurim is, since the Bikurim is the first fruit of the season, there is as well, the, the, our sages implemented as well, that the first energy, or that the first thing we do in the morning should be the same concept. First thing we do in the morning, what is? As soon as we open our eyes, we say... Modani Shema is right before we go to sleep. And as well, during the day, we say Shema in the, in the morning prayers, in the evening prayers, and then right before we go to sleep. But the first thing we say when we wake up is Modani. What is Modani? I printed out the cards. So you can take it home. Leave it by your, leave it by your um, um, night, uh, night table. Leave it by your night table. Um, but uh, we're going to read it now. What does Modani mean? Thank you. We could read text 12. We could read it. Thank you, living an eternal king, for merciful restoring my soul within me. Your faithfulness is great. There's a lot of Hasidic explanations of, regarding this words. But the point, the simple point is, you wake up, you're, you're grateful that you're alive one more day. You're grateful that you, you don't take for granted the fact that you woke up. It's the most basic thing that, you know, people... Assume that, yeah, I'm waking up tomorrow. It's like even, you know, we take it for granted. Sadly, this past year, with COVID, you know, a lot of people started to really appreciating that. But people who are young and, and, you know, after having vaccines and everything, we still need to be and not take for granted the fact that we are alive. And 
waking up and saying Modani is the, is the right track in order not to fall into the confusion. But not only that, not only about being um, alive, but text, uh, like text 12b, read text 12b, it's one of the first blessings that we say in the prayer, in the pray, in the morning prayers. Yeah, go Thanks ahead. Blessed are you, Lord our God, sovereign of the universe, who formed man with wisdom and created within him many orifices and cavities. It is revealed and known before the throne of glory that if but one of them were to be blocked or one of them to be ruptured, it would be impossible to survive even for a short while. Blessed are you, Lord, who heals us and performs wonders. Also about Modani, um, in Israeli secular music, um, one of the biggest stars, Omer Adam, he actually has a song called Modani where he takes verses from the, he takes bits of pieces from the Modani, the prayer, and actually includes them in a part of the lyrics, which I think is really cool. Um, but yeah, just a little yeah. fun fact about Israeli secular music. Modani, yeah, is, it, it, it's ingrained in, in Jewish society so much that even if you're quote-unquote a secular Israeli, you know, that, um, not ability, but that habit of being grateful is still something that is alive. And not only for the big things. You just read, we're not only grateful for the, you know, for being alive, but even grateful for, for having, making sure that all of the orifices of our body, you know, they work properly. It's like we take for granted we will be able to go to the bathroom. But we wake up in the morning and we say, thank you, actually, this is the, the blessing that we say right after we go to the bathroom. I mean, not right after, but after going to the bathroom in the morning and after washing your hands and, and, and making sure that we do a few, th- few of the rituals in the morning, we say a few blessings. One of the blessings is this, and that is that we take even the most, quote-unquote, insignificant, but they're not insignificant, or the most things that we take for granted, and we acknowledge it, and we appreciate it, and we say thank you about it. See, we, we say the same thing we see in text 12c. It's part of the Amidah. It's part of the blessings in the um, standing prayer. We say... We thankfully acknowledge that you are the Lord, our God, and the God of our ancestors forever. You are the rock of our lives, the shield of our salvation in every generation. We shall thank you and recount your praise, evening, morning, and noon, for our lives that are in your hand, for our souls that are entrusted to you, for your miracles that are with us daily, and for your continual wonders and goodness. All of this, all of these passages, you know, we see it in the morning. As soon as we wake up, the beginning of prayer, at the height of prayer, we see that same underlying being grateful of what of what we have and not taking for granted. There's a there's a psalm, text thirteen a. So not they want to read thirteen a and thirteen b. It's all connected. Every soul shall praise God. For each and every breath we take, we should praise God. What is the source of this teaching? It is written, every soul shall praise God. Read it, read it as, for every breath praise God. Yeah, in Hebrew, as we spoke multiple times, the words, the word itself has, meaningful, has meaning. It's not just a word in order to describe and to differentiate one item from the other, but the word itself has a meaning. And over here, what is the word for soul? The word for soul is neshama. And Shammai is a soul. And how do you say in, in Hebrew? Um, so, so the psalm says that every soul should praise God. That's, what the, that's the literal translation. That every soul should praise God. If you take, a, if you take the word neshama, you could read it as well as neshima. What is neshima? Neshima is... is a breath. Yeah. So if you read again and just if you read again the text in 13a in the bottom and just replace soul for neshima, for breath, it reads, every breath shall praise God. By every breath that we have, we should be praising God and we should be acknowledging and we should be grateful for it. So the detail that the Torah goes into how much we need to be grateful is not only for the big things in life. It's, it's every aspect of it. Every time we turn around, everything we do, and now we're going to see as well other, other um, sources, 
everything we do is about recognizing and acknowledging. Now you wonder, you know, why we have so many blessings that we have to do a day. Well, the reason is exactly because living in a society that have consumerism so strong, and then we have um, access, and that we, we have access to see how other people's um, life is about, and all of these things that, you know, that you might feel overwhelmed, and that is more prone to depression and all of the, all of the things that come with it, that is even more relevant to what the Torah has to say. People say the Torah goes outdated, you know, that's why you need to change it. It's the opposite. If you, now is when you really need to use what the Torah says. And I think too, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think too, it also shows the beauty of, um, because every little, you know, word and root in Hebrew uh, means something. Like, you know, even, you know, the way that you have the word breath and soul. Like every word has a meaning. Every root has a meaning. I think that is even more beautiful to just show this, the deep symbolism behind a lot of Judaism and our, our heritage, our culture, and the longevity of it because there is such attention to detail in every little word and every little you know, root of a word. Everything is so broken down, but everything has such deep meaning. So that's why the Torah is so important today because it lives on. It, it, the, the, the teachings and the traditions are so... It's, just, it's, it's something so crazy to me to think that, you know, Nishaman and, you know, Nishama, it's like... It's, it's just crazy to think about that little difference, but it has all the meaning in it. That's just the beauty of it. It gives me chills thinking about it. I just like, it's really crazy. That's exactly why it's called Lashon HaKodesh. Yeah. It's a holy tongue. We don't say that it's the holy tongue to brag about it. Well, you know, yeah, it's, it's our tongue. It's our language. You know, it's the Jewish people's language, Hebrew. That's why you're going to call it the holy tongue, Lashon HaKodesh. It's the holy tongue because... A lot of languages are constructed by societies. The holy tongue, or Lashon HaKodesh, is given, to, is given to society. So since it's given to us by God, and we see it everything, as, as you were saying, that it's not about words, it's about every single word has a meaning, has a deeper meaning. It's very hard for societies to come up to come up with come up, come up with all of these words. That's ultimately what guides us, and that's why our teachings have lived on for as long as they have. Because they're timeless. Right. Even even the laws of Shabbat. I remember discussing with a friend of mine. He was like saying, you know, few th- whatever, few hundred years ago, in Shabbat, Shabbat comes around. What what do you cannot do? You're not going to plow anymore. Okay, great. You know, it's like you're not plowing. That's that's. Of course, you know, it's not hard to not plow or, or not to whatever, you know, what, was, what, what they did back then, what was the lifestyle back then, not to schlep things here and there. So it's like, great, it's so easy to keep Shabbos, you know, it's so easy to... But nowadays, to keep Shabbos, the proper way is totally disconnecting from technology and shutting your phone and not being, and not doing. Nowadays, it's so easy to be... When, when, when the Torah says doing, doesn't mean that you have to be lifting weights. Torah means doing, means that your mind is focused in something, in something for the world in a physical way. Meaning you're not taking it back for yourself and contemplating of, of the purpose of everything you do. But you actually work would be to... to to engage in the world nowadays with a phone is so easy. The ability for us to engage, even to work, we all work remotely. We don't need to be, we don't need to be uh, lifting anything nowadays. So the ability, the message of Shabbos is much more relevant to our generation than be the previous generations. And as well with the teachings here of, 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 uh, of being grateful. You know, back then they weren't able to see all of the all the media and all the advertising that nowadays we are able to see. We live in a society that needs the message of the Torah much more than ever before. So that is one of the reasons also why, according to, the, according to Hasidic philosophy, why a person needs to eat so many times a day. Eat why? so many times a day? Eat, yeah. Well, use the bathroom. If, if, if I was God, I would design a human being that he needs to maybe eat once, I don't know, once a month, once a year, you know? Charge it once a month, once a year, good to go for the rest of human beings every four hours. You need to go to the bathroom, you need to eat a snack. To, why? 
So the Hasidic philosophy explains that that's an, God purposely designed in that way in order for the person not to think that he got everything under control by himself and that's it. But also to remind us that we should be thankful for all of these occurrences. That is a point that once I realize that, okay, if I don't eat, I, you know, I'm not going to have energy. I realize that my being is so compromised by, by food. Suddenly, I need, I need to acknowledge it. I mean, nowadays, I need to acknowledge it. I need to be thankful. And I should be thankful. And I should acknowledge. Nowadays, everything is... Even those necessities, we, again, fall into the category of taking it for granted. That, you know, it became part of our life. That, we, yeah, we eat in the morning, we eat in the afternoon. But it's just part of life. But if, if, if we really ask why we should be eating, why, why is it designed in such a way? Well, it's because God wanted us to just not think that we are able to do it by ourselves without, you know, without needing him, quote unquote. Okay. Um, and we're going to see the, 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 how, how grateful, or, uh, grateful how, be, how gratitude and being grateful um, trickles in all other parts. We see it in the Torah as well. Um, our name, what's, what's, how are we called? Jews. Why? Because we come Judea. from Judea. Judea. What was so special? What was um, Judea? What was Judea named after? Judah. Why specifically Judah and Judea? Because his name means recognition and gratitude. That's, that's correct. I'm going to ask Aaron to read text 14. Upon naming her fourth son Judah which means recognition and gratitude, Leah became the first person to express gratitude to God for deliverance. All of Israel goes by this name because the power of the Jewish people is that they recognize that everything comes from God, their deliverer, and they express their gratitude to him for it. That's the, that's the nature of Jews. We're not called Jews because... We're not called Jews because... I mean, what, what was the story behind it? The story behind it was that 10 of the tribes... Besides two, besides Judah and Benjamin. Ten of the tribes were exiled um, by, by the Romans. And what, the, what was the faith of the ten tribes? It's a little uh, mysterious. Um, it's a whole other subject. But then there was two tribes remaining. Like the, the, the tribes that were able to resist the Romans. And that was Judah and Benjamin. And eventually, Benjamin and Judah, they, they merged. But, and they were all called... They were all part of the kingdom of Judah. There were two kingdoms. That's, that's what I, There were two governments or two rulers. And, and eventually the last standing ruler or last standing king was the king of Judah. And that's why Judah was, was on the land of, of where Yerushalayim is today. Um, and that's why it's called Judea because there were the, the tribe of Judah were the part of the tribe of Judah. But on more of a, of a deeper level, it's not just uh, because that was, the, that was the tribe that was left over, that's where we get that name. But on a deeper level, Judah was named because it was all about gratitude. And our lifestyle and the Torah, not only lifestyle, but our being is people who need to recognize and need to be grateful. Being Jewish is having a Jewish soul. Having a Jewish soul links it automatically doesn't doesn't allow you not to be grateful i mean at least it will always be uncomfortable what i mean with that is a lot of people a lot of jews either love like god or dislike and hate god but there are not too many jews that are pathetic towards god the reason for that is because the Jewish soul, and that's what differentiates someone who's Jewish and someone who's not Jewish, is having a Jewish soul. Not, it's not practice, it's not knowledge. And, and the Jewish soul is what, for some reason or another, makes the Jew uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, makes the Jew aware that there, is, that there is a God, that there is something greater. Now you can like it or dislike it. But to be a pathetic, that there are not too many Jews like that. Now, that's the reason why Jews are called Jews. They're not, not only because they come from Judah, but because our nature is to be 
um, or should be to, our nature is to be grateful and we should even tap into the nature that we have. We're going to read text, uh, text 15. That the, the, the ability to be grateful trickles down not only to uh, between us and God, but even between us and other people. So Julie, want to read text 15? Sure. Among the foundations of the mitzvah of honoring parents is that it is proper to acknowledge and repay the kindness that one has received and not to be an uncouth and great. For ungratefulness is a dreadful character flaw that is an anathema before God and man. Yeah, to being grateful, not, not only between you and Hashem, but even to, you have to respect your parents because you're grateful for your parents. We're going to go a little bit faster. Um, it's now over time. But text 16 says about Moses, because Enel protected Moses when he was cast into, into it, he therefore did not strike it to initiate the plague of blood on Farag's. Aaron did so instead. The ability or the, the sensitivity to recognition and to being grateful, even Moses expressed it while him and not hitting the rock. In other words, Moses was saved by the rock, by the Nile or by the water when, when he was put in the, in, the, in the basket in the Nile. And so when it came the time to turn the water into blood and had the, the water had to be, someone had to strike the water, Moses abstained from it because he was able to be grateful for the water. And to the water that saved them, he was not going to strike it. So his brother Aaron had to do it. So this, it's not only, so we saw, we see over here that the, how, f- how deep into, into the Torah, the ability to be grateful dips, uh, sips into Jewish, not culture, but way of living. And that even to a water, you know, the water uh, is not going to complain. But nevertheless, the gratitude and recognition has to be there. Okay, um, there is more, we're going to skip this text, text 17, so read it, take this home and read it, but we're going to go to text, text 18, and see that that's the difference between Esau, Esau, and his brother Jacob. Esau said, when they met, actually, that's the, what was the reading of last week, that Jacob was escaping, running away from his brother Esau, that wanted to kill him. He ran away for like 20 years. Then when they met, his brother, he brought um, a lot of presents to his brother. And his brother said, oh, I don't need all this present." Initially, he rejected all the presents and said, I have everything. I have a lot. And Jacob said, I have, uh, take it because I already have everything. And the commentaries point out that Jacob said, I have everything. Whatever he had was everything for him. He, he doesn't need any more. Esau, even though he had a lot, but he didn't say to have everything. He said to have a lot. There's always room for more when someone says a lot. That doesn't mean he has like everything he needs. And that's the two. It's not only Esau and Jacob, but those are two, two ways of how to look life. Either I have everything and being grateful. That's a Jewish way. Or I have a lot. And that's not a Jewish way. There's a learning exercise. And text 20 is the reason why it's so hard to say thank you. You know, it's, 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 sometimes we do something good for someone else, or sometimes uh, there's for some reason it's not as easy to say thank you, or, or people don't do it, or people, what is it with that inability or that um, thing that stops us from being grateful? And that is that we don't, yeah, text 20. Nete, I want to read text 20. We don't like being reminded that we needed help. We don't want to be beholden to our saviors. Gratitude would seem to pose a challenge for this reason alone. Gratitude can be a bitter pill to swallow, humbling us and demanding as it does that we, ha- we, that we confront our own sense of self-sufficiency. So we may avoid it as we avoid going to the doctor for the annual prostate exam. Yeah, being grateful is part of, it's, it's, it's a humbling process. Being grateful is when you say, I acknowledge that I needed your help. Or they acknowledge that, you know, Whatever I had wasn't enough until you came along and, 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 and you fulfilled it or you completed it. So I, I say thank you. Now that part of saying thank you is underlying, is recognizing that I wasn't self-sufficient. And us as human beings, you always want to be self-sufficient. That's what we, you're always striving to be financially secured and emotionally okay. And everything that we're, that we're striving to be, and by saying thank you, we are 
implying that we weren't there. So people who are humble, they don't mind saying thank you. You know, it's, it's, it's not a problem. But for, for a lot of people that, you know, that might, treat, might, might play with their ego a little bit, saying thank you, you know, is you know, when you see two kids, they're, they're fighting. And at the end, okay, one brother, two siblings are fighting, and one brother ends up giving, his father forces him to give him whatever he wants from his brother. And then the other one, cannot, he can't say thank you. The father has to force him. Say thank you. You know, why? Why, why the kid doesn't say thank you? So it's part of that, it's part of that, uh, you know, the kid is only ego. The kid doesn't know anything else besides himself. Doesn't know, has no, no awareness of the other and other people's needs. And even sometimes, you know, a lot of people grow up and they're still a child in that way. That they're not aware of other people's needs and they're not aware of people, their surrounding. But it's, it's only ego. So for someone who's only ego to say thank you and to acknowledge that, you know, myself, I'm not self-sufficient, I need someone else, that is very hard. But the point from this lesson is that there's more, just additional reading and a few exercises that we skipped. But the point of, the, of this lesson is that having wealth, we not only should not have, we should always have more and more wealth, but we should always be grateful for what we have. And we should never lose the... As, as we spoke, we should never lose the reason why we are getting that wealth. If we're getting that wealth for something physical, so then is physical experience. And then we always want more and more. That's human nature. But if we're something spiritual, so that is a whole other, there's a whole other purpose for it. And wanting more and more spirituality, that's something good. That's something we should always be striving. So, you know, they... Right now, so a lot of people are going to celebrate Thanksgiving. So I think the message that, you know, a lot of people ask, so Rabbi, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? So from what we just learned, Thanksgiving is, every second is Thanksgiving. Every time we breathe, it needs to be Thanksgiving. And that's why when, we say, when the whole nation comes together to celebrate Thanksgiving, that's amazing. It's like, you know, the whole nation is, is recognizing that, you know, everything that we live in Judaism, we, everything that we pray, everything that we, that we learn, or, or everything that the Torah has to say about gratitude, the whole nation is coming together and celebrating it. So, of course, it's something that we celebrate. We don't designate one day for it. We designate every single day for it. But it's, if it's a Jewish holiday, I would say it's very Jewish. So, I hope this. I hope you're happier now than before the chorus. And... And take to heart the lesson, you know, being, to being grateful. Uh, part, of the, part of one of the exercises is that, and you should do it also a lot, a few times, is to write down what you're grateful about. Writing down and talking and acknowledging and not only thinking about it, but actually verbalizing it, that helps internalize of what you're actually grateful for. And, and all the positive things that come together with it of being able to, to live in the present and to appreciate it is much more focused and accentuated when we, when we, when we do the exercise. So 